Hello there, and welcome to Music Speaks. This is the podcast that dedicates itself to how music impacts people's lives. For this show, we usually have two co-hosts. My name, of course, is Sean Rakunis, and our friend Hunter Zagun is a new location, his own bedroom. Hunter and I believe that there are many people who have a playlist that makes their life unique through music. We pride ourselves on building on on our musical knowledge with our featured guests jamming to incredible music and talking about a wide variety of artists and composers and everything in between. And here is today's musical quote. It's easy to play any musical instrument. All you have to do is touch the right key at the right time and the instrument will play itself. J.S. Bach, talking sarcastically. No, I'm kidding. Um, Today we will be discussing Brandenburg II, of our Bach Brandenburg Collection six-part series. So without any further ado, let's get into some Bach. All right, and we are on talking about the concerto in F major, which is a, also known as, I'm going to say it was also AKA, <laughs> Brandenburg number two. That's right. Um, but before we talk about it, just a quick service announcement for listeners. Remember, if you'd like to support this podcast, please go to anchor.com and search Music Speaks Podcast to find ways to reach out to us. And if you uh, do so, you will also find our social media handles and other ways to contribute to said podcast. Now, having said that, we can start talking about the piece. And first thing to note, uh, in case you didn't know, Sean, mm-hmm. the this particular Brandenburg concerto, it's for trumpet, flute, violin, oboe, and then we have a first and second violin, viola, cello, and bass with a with a you know continual bass line. Um, we have another instrument that gets added on later, uh, the cembalo, but we'll talk about that when we get there. Sure. So, like the title says, it's in F major, right? So mm-hmm. that's sort of the first thing to know. It's a very happy, it's a warm key. I think we talked about how uh, it was known as the pastoral key, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it gives it that that sense of warmth. Seems to be a favorite of his of of box to use because we saw it in the Magnificat, I think, and then we saw it in another of Pardos. Um The one interesting thing that I read about it, and I guess you could speak about this more, is that mm-hmm. I read the trumpet part is the most challenge is accepted by most to be the most challenging part of this concerto. Um, and it was originally written for clarino, which was a, a like a older version of the trumpet, but it was transposed to the valve trumpet when it came along, um, or, or rather rewritten for that. Uh, why do you think it's so challenging for trumpet? Well, I would say that I think that most trumpet players associate this piece with the piccolo trumpet. Mm-hmm. The piccolo trumpet being that it has a very elaborate high range. Yeah, and and due to your endurance and due to your uh, embouchure and due to your high level of trumpet playing, this is basically one of the hardest pieces for the trumpet. Mm-hmm. Um, just because of the um, and and people would say, oh, is it because of the rhythms? No, is it because of the the high notes? Yes, it is because of the high notes. <laughs> Yeah, when I looked um, at it originally, I saw it and I was like, Jesus, God, what kind of, what trumpet player is going to play way up there? So it makes more sense that you're saying for piccolo. Right. I mean, it was originally written for natural trumpet, 
um, mm-hmm. or the clarino, you know, because that was like the earliest version. A clarino is actually almost like a clarinet in a way, where it was just a long circular tube with more like maybe four or five holes where the trumpet player would have to play like that with a it's it's the strangest thing it's a it's a wooden instrument but at the beginning of the the, the crux of the instrument is is actually a metal mouthpiece really it's it's really crazy it, and it's a sort of this slanted looking instrument and a lot of people would say oh what do you clarinos look like that's what they would look like they looked like early um because you you know as well as I do that the earliest um, horn instruments were made out of ram's horns. You know, like right. they would go like this, and um, they would craft them to be sort of like this, but they would have um, sort of a sloped sort of affect to it. You know, mm-hmm. and so that sound sort of elaborated on what it actually looked like. You know, and so that's what they were going for. It's so. <laughs> It is not really a lot, it's not very much performed on that nowadays because it's a very hard instrument to play. And especially when you talk about a higher register, the piccolo trumpet just sits kind of perfectly in that register. Um, But when I did it, I had a little trouble with it. And my teacher's like, you know, one of the, was a really great trumpet player. His name is Brandon Ridenour. And he was like, you know, I think he played it on flugelhorn. And I said, oh. wow, really? Why why flugelhorn? And, well, a lot of early Bach, we, we got to see it with the last Brandenburg that there was a horn part. There were two horn parts. Um, and sometimes Bach would exchange horn parts for trumpet parts. And so basically that part could have been played on horn. Mm-hmm. So making a historical decision to maybe make the same – uh, decision to play it on French horn also sounds exactly like playing it on flugelhorn. So there is a little bit of that distinction. And I'm glad you brought up the clarino because it's a very unique looking instrument, almost at a clarinet sort of way. Um, but it does have this very like brass sound. And we, if we look up a clarino, um, it is one of those stepping stone instruments that go from the natural trumpet to the clarino to the cornetto, to the cornet, to then the trumpet. And in the looking at the the stages of different instruments at the time, Brandenburg, the Brandenburg concertos were written later in Bach's life. So it would make sense that he would move away from natural trumpet to the Brandenburg concertos, to using the clarino, which is really interesting. And so I'm glad that you asked me about that. Yeah. Well, I yeah. figured I figured if anyone, you would know. Um, <laughs> And then something else I noted, uh, and I know you had a note about this as well, some of the musical motives uh, that are in this particular section. I mean, mm-hmm. they're sort of, you know, right there in your face. Mm-hmm. And I, it's this one pattern that's really repeated throughout the whole piece and all the movements at some point. It's this bump, 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 bump. Um, yeah. So for those listening, that's uh, an eighth, two sixteenths, eight, two sixteenths, and then four eighth notes followed by this sort of running eighth note pattern in the next measure. But that that eighth sixteenth pattern is constantly followed by the fourth notes, is repeated constantly throughout this piece and passed around from instrument to instrument. Right, yeah. And did you have a note about that? Yeah, I wanted to say um, one of my first notes while listening to this piece was I performed it before, and it's really, really easy to to figure out who's playing what, you know, Mm -hmm. as we're looking at, Who's playing the melody? 
who's playing the counter melody. And then it's really easy to then say, okay, what's another word we can describe to describe not the melody or the counter melody, but let's maybe describe another word that describes something that's just played over the melody, which is called the descant. Mm -hmm. And a descant is a instrument that doesn't have to play the melody but plays a little bit over the melody to embellish its creativity or to embellish its own, you know, unique flavor. And if we look at even the first three measures, um, mm -hmm. Hunter, who do you think has the melody in the beginning here? Well, based on that repeating motive we were talking about, it looks like the flute, oboe, and violin, and uh, second violin? No, yeah. it's, I guess flute, oboe, violin, all have... Right. Part that's doubled right so the beginning goes do so mi fa so mi fa so do 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 pom 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 and that's and that's the melody it's a two-bar melody and then who has the who has the counter melody in the beginning pretty pretty basic i mean yeah i mean there's two different ones i if you're talking about the descant or well you're talking about the descant being the counter melody or is it are you separating them Let's look at the counter melody first. Who do we think has the counter melody? Well, you have this uh, viola part that's sort of going bum, 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 bum. But I don't know. That could be the descant. I'm not actually sure which it, if that's what you're considering it, or is it the eighth, the repeated sixteenth note pattern underneath it? I actually think that the, the counter melody is in the faster bum ba ba pa 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 but they're just sort of embellishing over the melody. Just look at the look at the trumpet me, the trumpet part into measure three. You know, right. sort of embellishing because at that time we have the the flute, the oboe, and the violino, and the violin ones going You know, and right? Then, they take something that was the counter melody and are now making it the melody. Exactly, exactly. You got it. Perfect. And so you see something, and it's it's something that Bach does a lot in his writing, which is he does a lot of cross switching between counter melody and melody. And it's really easy to put together because you have, and it's really easy to understand that obviously the lower instruments have the counter melody because they're lower sounding, you know, and they have a little more sort of very depth, deep sound to them. Um, the higher instruments should be known to play the melody, right? Because they sound higher and they can be a little more distinctive, right? Yeah, so I think they're easier way, to hear. Right, and I think that that orchestra, orchestra, orchestrally, that makes a lot of sense because that's what Bach was going for. And mm -hmm. then to give the trumpet the chance to just also play a little bit of the melody, but not technically give it the melody, is just a really nice way to just sort of show the... the um, the connection that it has to this instrument. Just look at the beginning. It's not really the melody because what the trumpet is doing is just what is it laying out up until that that pickup note in the in the second bar, Hunter? What is it just doing? Up to the to the second bar. 
Yeah, no, no, the the pickup into the third bar. Look, look what what is, what is it? What is it only playing? It's only playing what? It just has high C's. No, 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 no. Look at the first and second bar of the trumpet part. First and second bar of the trumpet part. Oh, I see. Uh, it's just arpeggio. It's going on thirds up Arpe and then down. Exactly. So in that way, we have these. It, it's not the melody because it's just embellishing the melody. The melody is don't so and that's the beginning of the melody. And then once we get to the next part, we get to the and where do we get our first cadence? Right. <laughs> yeah. Oh, is that was that measure eight now? Measure eight. Yeah, that's right. And then my next, then my, my next suggestion as we're going into this next phrase is, um, why does Bach then give the chance for the violin to play? Well, I mean if. If you look at the other instruments that had the melody previously, I mean, it, it's all wind instruments. And ideally at some point, especially in this time period, you know, the violin was really the the main instrument. You know what I mean? So I guess at some point they'd want to give the whoever was playing first violin the chance to be featured. Exactly. So. Yeah. And then Hunter, what do we get back at measure 11? At measure so eight, nine, ten, eleven, we have return of the of the same melodic motive. Perfect. Yeah. So, constructly, look at the way Bach wrote this. I mean, he has the opening motive that goes for about eight bars, right? And then he has the next section followed up by a little solo by the violin, and then everyone plays the same thing again. Now, right. in measure thirteen, who has the melody again? Uh, we are back to, I'm just going to think, who is that, oboe? The oboe does now, yeah. Where have we heard that before? It was previously um, where the violin was playing it? Exactly, yeah. He yeah. just recycles material over and over because he knows it's identifiable. And they'll say, oh, right. I know who has the melody now. That's right. And now look at the... <laughs> I love looking at this part because it's uh, very high for the trumpet. But what does the trumpet start to play? They were playing that. Um, the... <laughs> right. It was the it was the counter melody from the beginning, and then right. which was eventually the melody, which is now um, in the trumpets. Right. Yeah. But now here's my first question, Hunter. What key are we in at this time? Well, we started in F major. Right. That's right. And then, I mean, it, it, it doesn't ever really change, but you sort of get hints that it, you know, might shift at some point and then shift back. Mm -hmm. So what key are we in in measure uh, 15? Uh, 12, 13, 14, 15. Oh, right there. Uh, let's see here. Yeah. Okay. We have... He introduces the first... Again, what is it the shift to the dominant now? Um, that's right. No, you're right. Yeah. Absolutely right. What what um what what uh, what what uh, um accidental do we see in the trumpet part? We see B natural, which obviously shifts from the key because it's now in C. 
Right. So we have been in F for the first part. And then now in this part, we are now making our way to the dominant, which is really interesting, you know, from that point in time. And now, Hunter, who then takes over the melody again? Well, starting at... 15 it's back in the original voices and then the flute gets it yeah the, flute line, the second bar that's absolutely yeah. right so who yeah who now who is playing the violin accompany part now from the from the from the previous part uh it is the who is it the oboe the oboe oh, no, is the, now the, playing that yeah isn't that really interesting it and is and we are and, and we're still in the key of C, right? Now, where... Yeah, be naturals everywhere. Right. Now, where can we say, is there another key change? Uh, let's see here. Where do we see the key change? Well, the B naturals hold through for quite some time, honestly. That's and right. And... That's right. Do we I make think a they key? disappear. Where do I, we uh, make Is a... it 28? 28. Hmm. End of twenty. Yeah. Okay. Okay. What do we now hear in the? I believe this is the violin part. Oh, then what? What? What key change are we making this to? So you see the violin part making its way with the accidentals. Isn't interesting? Yeah. E. What's it? Well, they have the one E flat note in the previous measure and then it right. changes oh no it's back to e flat again they keep changing between e and e flat yeah so what key is now box setting up from from c major we go from c major we go from f major to c major and now what do you think he's going to now uh well i mean circle of fifths says that it could be g but there's no e flats in g no, but look at the now look at measure 29. And now look at the look at the violin in the violin two part. Look here, are we in there? Wait, where are you looking? At measure I'm just pulling it up right now. Measure 31. We're looking at measure 31. Yeah, what do we see there? 30, 31. Yeah. Oh, you have the C sharp added in there now. So D. Oh, we have a we have a D. We have a C sharp. That's sharp. right. I actually think we're there. I actually you can make a case. I think we're in almost, I think we're in D minor. Almost, or you can make a discussion to make it into A minor. Yeah, well, yeah, you could, but then why would they have the C sharp in there? A minor would be C natural, wouldn't it? Right. Yeah. So you can then say we can say, oh, look, I think I think you're right. I think we can say that this key that we're looking at is in D minor. I think so. Right. Yeah. Where does he make the shift to D minor? Uh, let's see here. The shift could be at haha, B, get it? Music now. Um <laughs> let's see well uh what is that measure 28 29 30, 30 is it at 31 is it at 31 can we make the evidence to make it 31 because i think i think we're still in c right because well, then we're going along, the held tone in the trumpet part is an a so he's holding yeah. on this this a which if it's in d minor a is the fifth so that could be 
Um, right. I don't know exactly where it transitions, though. I think it's a great question. We might, we might actually be not totally modulating. We just might be passing through this key, right? Okay. So let's let's look a little further. What do we what do we have next? Let's see. What do we got? What's in, the, what's in the next? What's in the next few bars? Uh, let's see. A lot of held Bs and well, B in the top note anyway. And then B F. Was that B F B? Well, B flat. Yeah. So I don't know. Are we moving to a B? No, we can't move. Moving to B flat wouldn't make sense. We actually could be moving to B flat. Totally could be moving to B flat because because it it looks like we're body da da ba da 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 Yeah. Oh, it's it's totally. It, it sounds like that. It sounds like a sequence, right? So let me ask you this: What are we what are we doing in these next few bars? We're we're putting together a sequence, right? What what key are we in when we get to to this point? I think we're almost in. We're in. And then we go to we go from B flat to C to then A back to B flat and then back to C back to D in measure 36. What right. Because the yeah, because yeah. there's the C sharp that's uh the leading right. tone up to the D. Right. And we're cadencing in in what key? We're cadencing in what? Uh let's see, where does it cadence? Where I think that we cadence 30, in, end of thirty-seven. I think we actually cadence in um, in measure. Uh, hold on, what's the next bar there? Measure thirty-nine. Actually, I think we cadence in measure thirty-nine. Um, oh, I and that's actually a very very quick cadence. And we keep going, and then and then what key are we in in measure forty? Are we still in D minor? Uh, let's see here. Well, let's see. We've got A, D, D, uh, was that an F? A, D, D, F, and D, D, B. Uh, you know, honestly, I'm not sure here. Now, it this looks is like the top parts look like D still. But this is actually really interesting. Check this out, Hunter. So what we actually do is in measure 40, we cadence in D, and then we go to G major, in and the then in, me in, 40, measure, in measure measure fifty, in measure forty three, sorry, measure forty two. We go to G major in measure forty two, and then in measure forty four, we go to C major, which acts as a five back to our our one. Yeah, right. In in yeah. that stupidly, I'm looking at it's page forty eight. But it's measure 40, so I was looking, and that's why I said 50, but it's actually 42. Um, silly me. Right, isn't that funny? So now we're in, we're yeah. back in the key of, of F major. Of F but major, now, right. Now here's a, here's a crazy question. Do we stay in F major for very long? Um, let's see here. If we're back in F there, 
Uh, well, by the time we get to 44, 45, 46, 47, act, uh, well, no, 44 is not an F, right? And then by 46, you're an F. And then yeah. 48, yeah. 49, 50. Yeah. Was it 51 is not an F? Right, yeah. I actually think that 50, we actually have our first dominant sound. Our first F7 sound. F dominant 7 sound. Oh, sure, because the arpeggio in, arpeggio in the trumpet part, it's F, A, C. Well, then, no, no, then it's back to F again. No, we have, so, so we have boom, 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 beep, boom, boom, boom. And then, so in the bass, we have a, a lay. We have this lay, 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 lay. So, or should we have te, la, and then we go to, I think we go to, bum, 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 bum. Check, check out that. Look out. We have, we have E flat to D7, right? Look at the arpeggiation by the violin one and the violin two in measure 51. The arpeggiation by the violin. Okay. Yeah. Isn't that funny? And mm -hmm. then, and then we go to G major. In the neck in fifty-two, right? Yeah, and then G major in fifty-two, and then in fifty-three, what key do we hit in measure fifty-three? Uh let's see. Yeah, let's see. We have G sharps. Mm -hmm. G sharp B, mm -hmm. B, and then what's below that? G sharp B, uh, hmm. and B well B naturals I guess. Right. So B natural. We do another step up. Actually, actually the bass goes down, um, but but we go from we go from G major. We go from G seven to then E seven. Oh yes, because of the G yep. sharp. Right. That's right. And then we then cadence from E. To A7, but where's always our, with the, the root, though. The root of the chord is actually in the bass. Oh, chord. is it? Oh, okay. Yeah, you're right. There it is because it goes E, G sharp, B. Yep, that's right. And then we go to the next measure in measure 54, and then we get G over A, which is another A dominant seven. And then we go back to another F, F7, right? In that mm -hmm. bar right yeah. before our page turn, and then in measure actually flat 50, seven, right because of the E flat. Yep, yep, E flat. Well, actually F seven. Well, F A C E flat dominant seven, and then we land on fifty six, which we cadence in what key? Uh, we are back in. Oh no, wait, not back. We have what? Are we, what are our stack notes here? We have B flat A. No, wait, B, that's not an A. That's ha, it's wrong clef. Um, that's, that's all B flats. Are we in, I don't know, there's C flat. That's not C flat. What is that? E flat. And yeah. so, what are, so what are we cadencing? We are in. Because of the F7, flat? we are in B flat. Yeah. Yeah. And it's really, it's actually very, very easy. At that point, then Bach goes, okay, I'm going to stick in B flat for a few bars. And so what he does is he goes, he stays in B flat for the first two bars. He then goes to the two of the next bar, and then he cadences back from five back to one. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right? 
back to B right. flat major. And then now it starts to get interesting because now we start to get less instrumentation and we get measure 60, right? Right. And it's just that same pattern from earlier that's the melody. The right. right. Same, almost same passing figure by the the violin too. And they keep passing mm -hmm. each other and they, and they pass the motives back to each other, which is really great. So we go from... What key do we think that we're in 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 sixty and sixty one? Uh, let's see. We got E flat here. So I'm gonna say. Well, are we still in B flat? We B flats and E flats in those two measures. I actually think that we're in E flat major just for a little bit. Oh yeah, okay, yeah, because it's going from E flat to B flat, alternating, mm -hmm. and then you have the C, right? In the and next, then, you know, the C is the bass, and or no, I'm not C. The E is the in the bass in the next measure, right? Yeah, and so what he does is he does for the first two bars. I think we're in E flat. He goes back to B flat, and then he cadences in B flat with the with the flute part, and then he goes on to then add some more accidentals and then we go into some d major in the violin part so i think almost we're then in g minor and then we have this very long cadential figure and i think then we almost cadence in c minor and we cadence through C minor all the way through 68, 69, 70, 71. And then what does Bach do again? He just throws us at that same passage that we just listened to with all those boom, bum, 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 yeah, what is that? The violin, is that violin one doing that? The dun 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 dun. Yeah, that's awesome. So it's he all does on those off beats, right? So he he finishes in C minor in seventy one, and then in seventy two, he then puts us back into C major with the a B flat with the trumpet on top. So we can say, oh, that's a C seven going cadencing back to our dominant. But do we land on our dominant? Of course not. We don't. We land on a D7 chord, and then we land from there back from D back to G minor. <laughs> right, you have the F sharp there. Right, and then we go from, from G minor all the way to C minor, and then C minor becomes D, B flat major, and then it goes back to C minor. Oh my goodness gracious. So he does cadence in, in G, G minor, and then he just keeps playing around with this D7 sound to G minor sound. And we're just all keep wondering, like, where do we end with this? And then, Hunter, I have to ask you, look at measure 84 going on to the rest of the bar. And then we have this very nice chord laid out by the, the strings in this sort of like A7 sound. And then we cadence back into 
D minor. Right? And then in measure 94, he then makes his way back to C major. He does the same thing with that bum 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 and I think then we cadence back into A minor and then Hunter what do we finally get in measure 103? In 103 we have lots of oh hang on I just closed the score. Here we go, it's back. Um, measure 103, we have lots of B flats. Um, I mean, it's the, it's the same as the beginning. Right, yeah. So we get finally, we get the melody finally back again. Exactly the same that we had it. And then I want to ask you, does he go anywhere else at this time? Let me look at, look at measure 107. Have we seen this passage before? Um, yeah, yeah, I believe we have because you have the, um, oh, it, well, it wasn't that long ago, to be honest. It was, what was it? Yeah. Measure, wait, 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 where was it? Right. Scrolling back, finding it. It is, oh, there it is. Was it 72? Right. Yeah, it's the same thing. Yeah, it's exactly the same thing. So he goes through many keys. Until finally in measure 111, and then finally in the end there, he does he he continues and then he sustains the dominant for a really long time. And then in measure 115, Hunter, what does he do? He just copies the beginning again, and then yeah. you have the ending. The resolution. Right. Everyone likes a nice fermata to end note. Right. And I, I can hear a collective breath of our audience going. Whew, oh my goodness. Yes, that is correct. Bach goes through how many keys? Bach goes through like almost like 24 keys in a matter of maybe like three minutes, which is incredible. Uh -huh. Yeah. I, I should say that this movement doesn't have a title. Um, and it's just so focused. Um, I wrote so many questions. There are, it's it's very exciting. So, I mean, the melody isn't very exciting, but I think what Bach really wants us to, to really enjoy is the motivic analysis and the motivic movement between different keys. And I think that is absolutely fascinating. It's just mm -hmm. beautiful how Bach makes his way from F major, F major. It's beautiful. The, the picturesque parts of it are just absolutely beautiful. And... Hunter, I think you said this really well, but I wrote it down that Bach is very deliberate in his writing and finding moments to highlight each individual instrument. Mm -hmm. And he does that successfully. Like he finds ways to get each individual instrument and soloist noticed in this piece, yep. in the first movement, which is amazing. Um, and we really like saying this with Bach, but we say this all the time. Like he does this in like what? Like three to four minutes. Yeah, it's not very long. Each of the movements really aren't more than it's not. I think like yeah, like two three minutes. This this whole work is fifteen minutes, and he goes through maybe like twenty or twenty four keys in right. this, in that span of time, which is incredible. Um, 
Uh, my apologies if you didn't have the score in ahead of time. But if 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 you look at the way Bach just weaves and makes his way through this whole passage, is just incredible. And uh, his use of the uh, the bass part is almost deceptive too, where you think, oh, maybe that's the key of where we are. The bass note is the key of the of the of the section that we're in. No, not at all. He might even sometimes trick you and say, oh. That's the flat seven. You gotta figure out where you are, my friend. And mm -hmm. it's just a very beautiful way of putting that together. So I hope you had as much fun as I did, sort of crack cracking this movement down. Yeah, if it, you know, if anything, the uh, you know the writers from this era, the Baroque era, were certainly masters of form mm -hmm. and uh, you know and and structure. You know, not just not just ABA, you know, that kind of stuff, but also the the construction of the actual. Uh, chords themselves, how they move from one to the other. They really had a good handle on how to um, put those together in a cohesive way. Right. right. And in a way that moved well from one portion to the next. Right. And like you said, it is really easy to define each individual section. You know, this is the A section. You know, mm -hmm. this is the B section because of the development and the other material that's happening in the B section. And we know when it returns to the A section because it is so damn simple. And Bach does it so simple that they know when it returns, you know. Right. And that way you put up your expectations. And later composers are then like, you know what, what if we don't even give them the beginning again? What if we just create something completely different and we drive them crazy? Right. And so Bach's Which... original – right, go ahead. go ahead. Oh, no, I was just going to say – which is again very characteristic. I think we mentioned this last time, but it's very characteristic of this time period that people yeah. were not looking for the unexpected. They wanted something they knew. They wanted something that they were going to understand. And so, right. knowing that at the end of the piece, the beginning was going to come back almost exactly the same way, Perfect. they found that to be enjoyable rather than you know composers who come a little bit later. You know, by the time Mozart comes around or even mm -hmm. Beethoven where they were saying, okay, no, we need something new. They're, they shouldn't know what the ending is going to sound like yet. Exactly, exactly. But in Bach's time, that was just something that they did. And it was just almost like pop culture today to always use a certain progression. It was just right. very easy for them to use a certain form. And then that's how they followed it. We have moments of, I'm not sure if you understand what the word ritonello means, but having those small sections of, of small instrumental soloists and then coming back in and i like to say that this um it's not necessarily a uh, it is written it is played by a chamber orchestra and a lot mm -hmm. of people would say oh this is a concerto grosso because of the instrumentation yes it is actually exactly a concerto grosso because you have the soloists in a circle behind them you have a small orchestra and that mm -hmm. is what creates these brandenburg concertos because initially bach was like i want to put together an orchestra great but ever since two comes along, he's then like, you know, I want to do something different where I feature the soloist but still have an orchestra, you know? And so then the idea of concert concerto grosso comes into Bach's mind as this is something I want to do. Um, Vivaldi did this before I did this, and I like this. And so he took this sort of similar sort of context of Vivaldi and brought it to his own genre of music, which I think is just absolutely brilliant. So mm -hmm. I don't really think we have more to say about this movement because we talked about this movement for, wow, for almost 20 minutes. So, and again, folks, this piece is only three or four minutes of exactly what we just talked about, which is incredible. Yep. Um, 
Let's talk about the next movement, which is sure. called the Andante movement. Um, it is. And we've had this discussion before about D minor and its context and its darkness. Um, but I don't really think that this movement is very dark, in my opinion. What about you? No, I think it's just the the speed of it is deceiving. So, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. immediately once you slow something down, right. they think, you know, people think of it as darker. But, mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. minor doesn't necessarily have to be dark. Right. You know, it's not like it's it's diminished or anything. It's just exactly. it has a little bit of a... Uh, what's the word I'm looking for? It has a little bit more of a... a re- not reserved isn't the word I'm looking for. I'll say dark, even though I'm trying to make exactly the point, opposite kind of point. But right. it, it's just, it's very... It's just, it's not cherry, you know what I mean? But that doesn't necessarily mean it's not dark. Right, yeah. And, and then, of course, something right. else that adds to it is that, you know, the texture's thinned out because you drop most of the strings and the trumpet. Right, yeah. So then we really get to the chamber-esque parts of these, this piece, which is really cool. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think something that's really beautiful about this piece is the way that... We, we, we talked about this when we talked about the Magnificat, which was when things are slower, there's a little more elaborate motion in sort mm-hmm. of lines, especially within half, sort of like half uh, intervals. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a lean on them. Exactly, yeah. So we have a little more weight to carry when we're playing something mm-hmm. like this. And it's really beautiful. And something I wrote down was there is such emotion in the duets mm-hmm. that overlap on each other. And and Bach does it really creatively where he doesn't exactly put all of them together at the same time where he gives each individual moment for each individual instrument to shine, just like the previous movement. So mm-hmm. he finds ways of showcasing these instruments. What was one of your favorite passages in this part, Hunter? Um, let's see here. What was one of my favorite parts? I mean, I do like the beginning of it, and that sounds like a cop-out, but I mean, I like the way the, um, (laughs) I like the way, if you look at the beginning, the first, what is that, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, the first eight measures, right, are the three melodic lines taking turns coming in to give it this sort of, um, not a round, but, uh, uh, you know, it has a staggered effect where... You have the violino come in first with this pickup eighth, uh, pickup quarter note dotted quarter note pattern, and then the oboe does it a measure later, and then the flute does it a measure after that. So they have this; it's constant movement happening, almost like an echo effect. Right. It, it is very cool, and obviously you get the different tones of each of the instruments because they have very unique uh, right. timbre. One of my favorite moments, Hunter, is in the beginning, almost in measure, uh, it's, it's, it's sort of, um, here. Actually, it, it happens a few times, but one of the moments that I really like in this is if you want to take a look at measures 33 through measures 36 on the second page, something I really like is the, is the motion that two instruments sort of play together and look at the, look at the use of the eighth notes. So you have and 
Eat him. Uh -huh. And it's really beautiful how he then he goes from two voices to two voices to two voices to two voices to two voices. And it's so clever. It, it, it's, it's so frustrating, but it's so clever. Just just looking at how they get paired together is brilliant. Just mm. just take a look at how like they they have this sort of oh this two part there. Oh, they get moved again. Okay, we're new it again. We're changing it again. And the Bach changes it again. Oh, it's 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 so fantabulous. I love how Bach does that. And mm -hmm. it, it's so I mean, like he adds in those yadam, but he does it together with with two different instruments, and I think that that echoes the the really um, almost romanticizes it in a little bit, you know. And on top, or rather not on top, but underneath all of this, you have this almost walking bass line. Or it's not even walking; it's just it's a constant bass line in the cembalo, where. Mm -hmm. They, I don't think they real. I don't think the cembalo ever stops the whole piece, uh, or the whole movement rather. And well, with the exception of measure forty-one, I think. Unless that's a, uh, unless that's a, unless that's a cadence points, cadence points. Dum, bum. Yeah, I think it might be because the Bobby. the D oh. that picks up into the next measure. Um, so right, the the that base part. Mm -hmm. Not that it, I give the sense like it's giving the, just this, this, you know, you mentioned enhanced motion in slower parts. Well, if you have this constant motion in another part, it'll make the rest of the parts that only come in certain times, like you said, the bottom, bottom, mm -hmm. it makes those stand out. Right. And I like the very slow Sarah Bondness of this mm -hmm. movement just because I feel like it just kind of plays around almost with a little bit of a dance feel because we get that weight on the first beat, you know? And I think that that almost plays around with this kind of like very sneaky dance. And I love how sneaky Bach is at the end because mm -hmm. you're expecting D minor, but no, you don't. You get D major. D major. Yeah. And I love the sound of D major. D major is just so brilliant and it's just so warm sounding, you know? And it is so outside the key center that I love it. It's like we get this really, we get, because F to D to F is the format of each individual movement. Uh -huh. um, and then we have, and then it's just like, it is so clever just because he's then kind of like, you know, the cadence parts, you know, he then repeats a lot of his past material, but then look at the way he ends it. I love looking at each individual part. I mean, the the, the cembalo, I'm very sorry, cembalo has the most boring part, but look at which part is your favorite, Hunter? Do you like, bee -boo -dee, bee -dee -dee -dee? or do you like, ba -dee 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 -ba -da -da? Or do you have that? That's my favorite because it goes everywhere, and you're expecting it to resolve through downward motion, and it does, but it doesn't actually resolve. Yeah, yeah. I, I think I like the. I think I like what is that? The uh, is that the violin part? The violin the, um, part. Yeah. yeah, it ends on the F sharp. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. I think so. That that's sort of. I mean, it just stands. I always like ending things on a it's, on an accidental. It's, 
it stands out because it is so distinct. You're sort of expecting it to end sad, but it just ends very warm, you know, mm-hmm. and I love that. I love that sound because um, it, it is so unique to to what, what we're hearing. Mm-hmm. And then lo and behold, we revert back to F again in the next movement, if that's okay, if we want to move on. Do you have anything else to say about the second movement? Uh, just looking at my notes here. Uh, no, I just had that, what we said earlier about the, right. the motive from the first movement right. showing back up again. Oh, sure. Yeah. Where do you, where, where would you find that? Oh, uh, where did I find that? Let's see here. It was, well, I mean, the, the, the motive is really that, right. It's the dotted, or the dotted quarter 16th pattern. Uh, not that accord. Uh, oh, it's the, the eighth note and two sixteenths. Is it that one? Uh, yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, it sort of changed a little bit because it's instead it's sort of the opposite. It's but up bump. Yeah. Well, yeah. It's what you just sang. Oh, I see. In in measure like twenty five. Bum bum da 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 Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Beautiful. Masterful. Something that Bach would do all the time in his music, crafting mm-hmm. new melodies because of, and and you know what you know what Igor Stravinsky said. You know, I told you this all the time, but like great composers, you know, compose music, but the best composers they recycle and reuse material <laughs> yeah. because they know how to reuse material, and that's incredible. And they are able to relate that to exactly what they're doing, which is incredible. Mm-hmm. Wow. All right. Are you ready to talk about the third movement, the Allegro Assai? I am. Okay. But are you? Well, I, you know, it's it's a little hard to talk about this movement because it is one of the hardest openings in trumpet history because Bach, again... Well, sure. Look at, the, look at that range. It, it is incredible. So he goes from... Of course, he doesn't play it in a regular octave. No, no, no. He has to play it in a high octave. Right. It it is it is so distinctive. Yeah, <laughs> and it's so. There's crazy. no one really. I mean, the the cembalo part with the violoncello uh, is doubling you. But let's be honest, it's really just you. It's the trumpet part that gets the most attention because it's like, like we said, um, the dark parts don't get as noticed as much because they're lower and not as, as high. The high colors get the melody because that's, that's their initial color. You know, it it makes sense that sometimes that higher instruments get the melody because it's easier for them to project, you know, right. It might be harder for them to play background figures because their initial sound is a lot less dark than they're actually bright, which is really interesting. Right. So I think that's um, a really great movement, uh, an idea. Um, so Bach, as he does in his third movements, invents a fugue in this uh-huh. movement. We have the subject. And then who takes over the melody or who takes over the counter subject? The oboe. The oboe does. Do you do you love this chamber aspect? Because there's no there's nothing else happening besides the the bass part, but that isn't really as recognized as the op- the upper two voices. What do you That's think true. about that? I think it's you know not only you know the oboe and the trumpet both I think are very 
what to your point about their colors being very noticeable right they're right. noticeable in different ways so i think the fact that he contrasts the two of them is a good choice because i mean you're like you're not going to have you know the flute trying to play with the trumpet because you're never going to hear it um there's something about the sound of an oboe it's sharper and it'll right. cut through and it's a good contrast to the brass sound right right now, what else did I say about this movement? Talk about my experiences in this movement. So yes. I have played this on piccolo trumpet, mm -hmm. and I have played this on flugelhorn. Um, it is very hard to perform this on piccolo trumpet because you are so exposed. It is so high, <laughs> and it's ridiculous. <laughs> I'm um, kidding. Bach had the biggest expectations for trumpet players. It is incredible. He would mm -hmm. write these crazy, amazing things. Um, my teacher, Chris Coletti, would always say to me, did you know that the trumpet player who played his B minor mass died the night after he played it? Did he really? <laughs> he did, because it was so hard. And then he, he, he just died after that. I was That's like, really funny. oh my God, because Bach had such high expectations for the trumpet because it was just, it was just one of those instruments that just brought jollity or jollity to huge amounts of people like when you heard a trumpet you knew exactly what it was and mm -hmm. it was the sound of rejoicing and i think exactly that's what bach is trying to go for here you know i did say uh um the counter subject for the oboe but i actually think that the the oboe takes over the subject and then i believe that the counter subject is then developed through the um the subject from the trumpet player the trumpet player then takes over the counter subject but right, the well, melody has is this Sorry, go ahead. Sorry. Oh, no, I was no, just going to say, he has this, it, it's this very static sort of bump, 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 yeah, or bump, exactly. bump. Right, exactly. Yeah, and it's it's very, very elaborate. Let's look at where, yeah. let's look where we finally get the orchestra. Do Where do we finally get the orchestra? Uh, let's see, the whole orchestra doesn't come in until, like, meaning everyone at the same time. Exactly. Doesn't come in until measure forty-seven. We don't get them until measure forty-seven. Right. Is incredible. Why does Bach do this? He wants to create these really intense movements between these soloists, you know, and that's what we're most likely to hear when we start. Because mm -hmm. we talked about the Concerto Grosso, we talk about these individual soloists who really wanted to showcase what they're what they're playing, and and Bach does an amazing job of just exposing these four instruments and just making them really pointed out but then uh, hunter are they even playing anything at this point in time are they playing i mean they just the, the, i mean the rest of it they just have this eighth note eighth rest eighth note eighth rest eighth note eighth on and on and on and on um right. yeah. which i mean it accentuates what they're doing but i mean it, mm -hmm. it really doesn't add all that much other than right. maybe a little bit of volume but right. i mean yeah like you said, I think it's really about giving the soloists their chance to mm -hmm. be heard because if he were gonna write a, you know, if you wanted to showcase the orchestra, you would write a full orchestral piece. You wouldn't write a chamber music piece. Right, right, exactly. You know what I mean? Yeah. And yeah, even though the orchestra was not quite what we would think of during this time period, you would still, you know, they would, he would write or composers you know, like Haydn, you know, they would write for full orchestra. And he chose mm -hmm. to, you know, Bach chose to write a, a chamber piece so therefore he must have wanted to show off right the specific instruments players 
Yeah, and we start to see patterns in his music, such as what kind of motivic feeling he likes to add in his own fast movements. He likes these yatatam, yatatam gestures because they're uh -huh. easy to return to the key. You know exactly what he's doing. It is very, very clear. Um, and then, Hunter, if you don't mind me going all the way to the end of the movement, we can all the way then, to the end. we can discover something brilliant about his compositional pattern what do we discover about comp on box compositional pattern at the end of his at the end of his later movements what do we usually find his recycled material he just reuses the beginning of the piece and he just mm -hmm. copies it and just puts it there why does he do that we explained that in the beginning, right? Right. I mean, it's it's right back to what we said before about expectability, you know, uh, expectedness, and you know what it, from society, you know, what are they expecting to hear? And to be honest, what are composers familiar writing, right? So at the right. time, they knew when they were taught composition, this is how you write this kind of piece. You write the beginning, you you know, you uh, expand upon it in the middle, and you know, possibly write a second theme. And then you come back to it at the end. That was the accepted academic way of writing. Right, right. And that's how Bach did it. I mean, we can again go through all this harmonic analysis, but I don't really think there's a point because he does the same thing in the first movement. Explore keys, explore right. key centers, you know? And look, we talked about in detail in the first movement was how he goes from different keys to different keys. But it's so easy for him because he mm -hmm. can see everything laid out in front of him and he uses the bass to his advantage. And that's really where his compositional you know, construction works. And we almost, I believe, we cracked the way Bach put together his movements. And I think it'll be really great until you know we come back in a few weeks to discover Brandenburg 3 and we look at exactly how he does it again with the three movement structure. We talked about it last time with the four movement structure, but have we seen anything different from exactly what we've talked about with other Bach compositions? No, I don't think we have. No, he clearly has us. Uh, he has his distinct style, his pattern that yeah. is recognizably his. And it works and it's gorgeous. Yeah. It's beautiful. It's brilliant. I think it's just, um, we, we can sit here and talk about it for a while, but um, I think he does a really great job with the little that he has. And I think uh -huh. it just, it's noticeable, you know, because all his melodies aren't whistle, whistle tones, <laughs> whistle tunes, but <laughs> it is, it is quite moving because of yeah. how the motion of it is, how exciting it is, you know, how, you know, sad and then how relaxing it can be. You know, uh -huh. I think it's, it's a, it's a culmination of a lot of different things, but I think, Overall, Bach is a really great composer because he's able to do all these different things with the little resources that he has. Yeah. Exactly. So, All right, my friend. I think that is it for this episode. Um, for those listening, I want to thank you for listening and for us talking about Bach. It is such a pleasure to talk to my friend Hunter about Bach, and hopefully uh, we will talk about Brandenburg 3 next time. So catch you then. Thank you, Johann Sebastian Bach. Next time, we'll be talking with our returning guest, Meredith Newman, to examine choral music in the Renaissance, something people don't often talk about, so we're excited for that. So that's it for me. I'm Hunter Sagona. And I'm Sean Rukunis. 
and keep listening to what you love.